Last week, we talked about research from the Gallup organization that shows uh, a declining influence of the church in American society over the past 20 years. We feel it less acutely here in Plano and certainly here at Christ United specifically, but it is a national trend that deserves our attention, I think. Today, only 47% of Americans consider themselves to be members of a church, synagogue, or mosque, and Americans who consider their religion to be very important to them, uh, have, that number has fallen to an all-time low of 48%. Far from being a discouraging reality, this is, to me, an exciting challenge for us to reach new people. I personally believe that we are at a watershed moment in the history of our country. We can no longer assume that the people we're trying to reach know the basic assumptions and teachings of the Christian faith. We can no longer assume that our culture speaks a common theological language with common theological beliefs. So as we look forward to the next generation of ministry here at Christ United, we need to be very clear about what it is that we're offering in our Methodist understanding of the gospel. With that in mind, this is week two of our Easter season sermon series, Faith Matters. We're spending five weeks exploring the, the question of why Christianity is important. Why is Christianity relevant? Why do people need it? What do we have to offer to the 53% of Americans who do not yet have a church home. As we talked about last week, for those of us who have been in the church our whole lives, uh, these can actually be challenging questions to answer because we rarely think of these questions. We intuitively know why our faith is important to us, why we call the church our church family, why we raise our kids and grandkids in the church, and why it's so important to us that they have a foundation in the faith. The good news is that we know the answers to these questions. The bad news is uh, that we know the answers without necessarily ever having articulated them to ourselves. It's like when you, you know very well how to get to a familiar or favorite place, but cannot necessarily uh, give someone else directions to that familiar or favorite place because you long ago stopped paying attention to the street signs. You simply know the way. For everyone who's been around for a while, our faith is, is kind of like that. The challenge facing us is that uh, there's an ever-increasing number of people in this country who have no idea why faith is important, why we call the church our church family, why they should raise their kids and grandkids in the church and give them a foundation in the faith. And it may be that at least part of the reason that more than half of Americans do not consider themselves members of a church, synagogue, or mosque is because we've, we've kind of taken for granted that everyone should want a church home. But the reality today is that not everyone realizes that they need a church home. So our goal in this series is to... Um, is to think through the basic outline of the Christian faith and, and why it matters to the world. So last week we began with an important foundation. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, we believe that we are created in the image and likeness of God. That's a concept found in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. And because of this great theological truth, we believe that there's 
there's divinity within us all. Uh, we talked last week about an early theologian in the church from the second century AD, a man named Irenaeus, who taught the concept of uh, divinization. That is, God uh, in Jesus Christ became one of us so that we might become what God is. That's really a startling theological claim. And because of this divinity within each of us, we share a common humanity. And because we share a common humanity, everyone is invited into a relationship with God. Everyone is welcome. That's our Methodist understanding of the Christian message, and it's an essential part of our identity here at Christ United, so we started with that last week. Today, we're talking about how in our common humanity, we all share a common problem. So throughout this series, we're reading from the book of Acts, which is the story of how the earliest disciples began to make sense of the Christian message after Christ's death and resurrection. Our first scripture today is one of the recommended texts for this season. And right before our passage for this morning, this first passage we're about to read, uh, Peter has healed, quote, a man lame from birth. That's, the, that's what the text says. This is a man who had begged for alms, had begged at the uh, gates of the temple for some undisclosed amount of time. And we hear that the people who had walked past this man every day, who, who now had seen him miraculously, miraculously healed, quote, were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this is Peter's response that we're going to hear now. This is Acts chapter 3 verses 12 to 19. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Acts. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glori have glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had told, foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So throughout Acts, uh, Peter makes a series of speeches, each of which outlines like various aspects of Christian theology. His first speech is on Pentecost. We're actually going to hear that a few weeks from now. We heard one of those speeches last week. Our first reading today is Peter's second speech in Acts, which gives us a glimpse of Luke's understanding of the cross and points to our common problem. 
Now, we're not going to spend too much on the time on the cross today because it's our subject for next week, but suffice it to say for now that there are a variety of, of interpretations of the meaning of the cross in the New Testament. I think a lot of people are surprised by that. And it turns out that Luke's explanation is really quite simple. According to Luke, it's not that Jesus had to die in order to satisfy some sense of divine justice. There's a variety of atonement theories, um, this, this concept of how God reconciles us to humanity on the cross, that's the atonement. There's a variety of theories about exactly how that happened. Some of them uh, appear elsewhere in the New Testament. Some of them are developed much later in Christian history. But for Luke, the, the meaning of the cross is simple. It is simply the result of human sin. Specifically, the cross is an example of the inevitable violence that results when people reject God. We heard it the way Peter says, the way Peter puts it is, you killed the author of life. And the resurrection is God's response to human sin. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. In Christian theology, our common problem is that the problem of sin and the power of sin that had a hold on us. Sin is the, the stubbornly enduring predicament of the human condition. And Christian thinkers throughout the centuries have offered various interpretations of it. Throughout this series, we're turning to a variety of theologians uh, to help us make sense of why our faith matters. Our premise is that uh, just as those earliest disciples were on a spiritual journey to lay the foundation of Christian theology and acts, and just as we're on a spiritual journey to interpret Christian theology to an increasingly secular America, so theologians throughout the centuries have added their unique voice to the tradition. Today, we're turning to a 19th century preacher in the Quaker tradition named Lucretia Mott. And credit for hearing from this particular voice goes to Reverend Stephanie Reed Meyer, who, who recommended Mott. Stephanie, Reagan, and I worked on this sermon series together, which is also being preached in our modern worship service this season. And I'm grateful to Stephanie for introducing me to our theologian for today because she's She's an important voice in our faith history who I, I think does not get enough attention. The image that you have on your screen is a statue from the National Museum of American History. Uh, Lucretia Mott was one of the most important reform voices of the tumultuous 19th century. When our nation's destiny was shaped in the struggle for human rights, the human rights specifically of those on the margins of society. An ardent abolitionist in the pre-Civil War era, Mott led the Female Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia, that was the name of that organization. After the war, she fought for voting rights for former slaves and she became one of America's foremost peace activists. But she's perhaps best known for her lifelong, tireless advocacy of women's equality the cause for which she preached and organized and fought until her death in 1880 at the age of 87. 
Just a side note here, I have lots of fun facts about Lucretia Mott that ended up on the cutting room floor for the sake of time. If you want to hear some of those facts, you can tune into the weekly podcast that Reagan and I do called Off Script, and you'll hear lots of those uh, bits of trivia. For Lucretia Mott, uh, her abolitionism, her peace activism, her lifelong struggle for women's rights all flowed from her understanding of Christian theology. And she began with the same starting point that we talked about last week. So beginning with the great truth in Genesis 1, that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, Mott preached the equality of all human beings without exception. Based on the teachings of her own Quaker tradition, her starting point was this really beautiful principle um, of the inner light that is within each of us. In the words of contemporary theologian Rosemary Radford Ruther, quote, For Mott, the inner light was simultaneously a revelation of the true inner spiritual nature of every human being and the presence of the divine in the depths of the self. Possession and access to this inner light were not limited by gender, race, or creed, end quote. Mott preached uh, what is, it seems to me, the plain truth of Scripture that Christ made very clear how God wants us to live, pursuing justice and mercy and love and peace. Unquestionably shaped by her own lifelong advocacy of equality for former slaves and women, Mott believed that our common human problem is our refusal to live into the divinity within us, which is to say that sin for Mott is our rejection of or denunciation of or refusal to bear witness to this inner light because of hatred or bigotry or greed or simple self-interest. I love that definition of sin. I mean, we can think of sin as all the things we do wrong, That's one way of thinking of it. Or we can think of sin as this power that is within us. That's another way to think about it. For Mott, it was our refusal to accept the divinity within us. Now in her day, the problem that she faced was not lack of church membership. (laughs) Everyone in her day was in the church. Instead, uh, she had seen all too well how the power of the church could be focused on the wrong things while simultaneously justifying both slavery and the relegation of women to second-class status. For her, the core problem of the human condition had everything to do with our human unwillingness to allow the Holy Spirit to work the inner transformation that God intends. She, just, she preached this from one of her sermons, quote, It is time that Christians were judged more by their likeness to Christ than their notions of Christ. Were this sentiment generally admitted, we should not see such tenacious adherence to what men deem the opinions and doctrines of Christ, while at the same time in everyday practice is exhibited anything but a likeness to Christ. That's good stuff. We'll come back to Lucretia Mott uh, shortly. 
So our second reading for today, we're actually going to uh, venture a little out of Acts. Uh, we're going to turn to a very famous passage about sin from the apostle who did more than any other New Testament author in helping us to understand it. For some of you, this is going to be a familiar passage. This is Romans 3, verses 21 to 23. Listen again, friends, for the word of God, this time as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the apostle Paul. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. That's a, it's a famous uh, verse all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what's important about this is that Paul was writing to a divided church in Rome, a community where Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians each tried to claim the moral high ground over the other. The brilliance of Paul's message in those, those couple of verses, uh, aside from its memorableness, is its simplicity. We're all in this together. We all share a common humanity, and we all have a common problem, namely, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For almost 2,000 years now, the church has responded uh, in a variety of ways to the problem of sin. One response to sin has been to, to fixate on it, to overemphasize it, sin, to constantly judge ourselves, and worse, I think, to judge others against this external moral standard that sometimes seems impossible to fulfill. In fact, over the past two decades, that period of time during which the influence of the church, church has sharply decreased, uh, this has become a common stereotype of Christians by those who have left the church or rejected the church altogether, especially among millennials, the millennial generation, only 36% of whom claimed membership in a local church, synagogue, or mosque, according to that Gallup poll that we've been talking about. In a study a few years ago, the Barna Research Group found that among millennials who do not go to church, 87% see Christians as judgmental. 85% see us as hypocritical. 70% see us as insensitive to others. Now, my own personal opinion on this is that these folks uh, have not yet found the right congregation. They have not yet visited the right congregation, but clearly Christianity has a, a messaging problem when it comes to our common challenge. Too many people assume that we are overly fixated on the sins of ourselves and especially on the perceived sins of others. In our Methodist tradition, the Christian life is about growing in our love for God and neighbor, something the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, called going on to perfection. For us, the Christian life is not about beating ourselves up because of our sins or making others feel guilty about what they're doing. We're about growing in our own discipleship and in the process, bearing witness to this divinity 
within. Which brings us back to Lucretia Mott. Ruther described her theology this way, quote, the real message of the gospel for Mott is the call for real transformation of the self and society in living ways of justice, truth, and love. In Methodist ease, we call that sanctification. And for us, it really is the heart of the Christian journey. Now, part of that journey is acknowledging uh, when we miss the mark, to be sure, recognizing our shortcomings and turning back to God when we need to. That's the, the literal meaning of the word repent, after all, to turn. And it's an important part of our spiritual journey. But when it comes to our our common problem of sin, we believe that the Christian life is about our own transformation. It's about growing in our faith through worship and study and service and prayer and the other spiritual disciplines and justice-seeking and acts of mercy. It's about learning and studying and seeking to live the truth of the gospel and having the theological humility to realize that we all share a common humanity and a common problem. Because God shows no partiality. Jesus is Lord of us all, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, our faith matters because it helps us understand that we all struggle with a common problem. It's a a self-destructive problem that leads to all kinds of heartache and misery in the world. There is divinity within us, what our Quaker friends call an inner light. That's our common humanity. Our common problem is that we're really good at denying it and ignoring it and rejecting it to the detriment both of ourselves and those around us. Next week, we're going to talk about our common solution. But until then, let us remember the prophetic words of a brilliant 19th century prophet who said, the likeness we bear to Jesus is more essential than our notions of him. Amen.